Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Matthew 26. We'll be looking at several passages this morning, so we'll be turning to different places. Considering this morning the two displays of the gospel that our Savior Jesus Christ has woven into the fabric of the life of a church. As we come to the Lord's table this morning and as we meditate on these two ordinances over the next several minutes, I wonder if you've ever personally considered the great significance that they have for us as a church family. Are they important for your own walk with Jesus Christ? In what way are they important? How do they help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? How do they help us grow together as a body? What is God's intention for giving us these signs, these symbols? If you're a guest here with us this morning, our normal practice, our standard practice, is to work systematically through a book of the Bible week by week and study it as you would study any other piece of literature. We'll resume our study in the book of 1 Peter next Sunday. This morning, we're concluding our series entitled The Habits of Grace. Over the last several years, at the beginning of a new year, we focus on habits or disciplines that are a part, a regular part of our lives as believers. These habits are God's means or his tools of grace to help strengthen and build up our faith. So this morning, we'll consider the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper at a very general level. Are the ordinances important to you in your walk with Christ, or are they merely practices that are part of church life that hold very little meaning to you? You're fine to go along with them. That's what our church does. That's fine. But you haven't really thought through why God gave them to us. Are the waters of baptism, the bread and the cup, merely empty symbols? Let's think about symbols for a moment. Symbols can hold significant meaning for us as they represent something that we feel strongly about. Think about the different symbols that, for instance, we place on the back of our cars. We display our allegiances through these decals, right? We we show our allegiance to a team that we support. We want other people to know that's my team. Or you've seen these stickers on the back of the windows that show your family, right? Stick figures of the family. Or maybe we even have a logo for our church back there. How do we respond when our valued symbols are disrespected or even destroyed? Imagine someone burning our nation's flag or the flag of your own home country. We've all seen pictures or videos on the news of a crowd of people cheering as the flag of their enemy burns in the streets at the hands of a noisy crowd of people, a rowdy mob. Why does that stir such strong emotions within us? After all, isn't it just a piece of cloth? Yet a burning flag is powerful, and that's why it's done. For that noisy crowd, it provides for them a focus for their protests, a release of their frustrations, a demonstration of their view of their enemy. And for others, it provokes anger. And if it is your flag burning, it can make you even feel personally 
provoked and attacked. But why? Isn't it just a piece of cloth? Just a symbol? Well, we recognize that symbols hold meaning. They can be very emotionally powerful to us. We know that certain symbols are more than the materials from which they are made. There can be a very real and strong link between the sign and the thing that's being signified. So what does God intend for these symbols here in front of us, here before us, that are woven into the fabric of our life as a church? Why did God give these symbols? This morning, I'd like to argue that our Lord instituted two visible and tangible symbols of his grace for our good and growth in Christ-likeness. Now, I don't think that's anything that any of us would disagree with. But the goal here is to elevate our thinking, to remind us of what these are and what they do in our lives. So let's look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, and we'll see one of these symbols. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26. God's word says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's ask for God's help as we look at this topic together this morning. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you're a God who knows us well. You know what we need. You know how to encourage us. You are a good and gracious Father. So Lord, I pray that you would grow and enhance our trust. Encourage us in our faith this morning as we think of these two displays of the gospel. Help us to see them as visible, tangible, verbal displays of your love for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'd like for us to consider three main questions together. What are the ordinances? Secondly, why are they important? And thirdly, how do they help us grow in grace? So first, what are the ordinances? A Christian ordinance is a ceremony that our Lord Jesus Christ instituted to be permanently practiced by the church. A very standard definition. But we want to be clear here in thinking through this that this is not our idea We did not come up with this. We did not invent this. This is not something I think we could invent. This is God's idea ordained by Jesus himself. They are distinct ceremonies intended to symbolize something to us and for us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, here's what the symbol signifies, You proclaim the Lord's death. And not just that he died, but what that death accomplished until he comes. The Lord's Supper is to be the regular repeated practice of every true church in every corner of the world. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 11. That's what we see in Matthew 26. 
Similarly, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the mission of every church in every part of the world throughout all time until Jesus comes again. Now, a quick side question. Why do we only practice two ordinances? There are other faith communities that practice seven, others more, some that say there are three. Why do we only practice two? Well, there are several tests that define an ordinance for us. First, Jesus himself had to institute it by command. Jesus put both of these, as we've seen in these two passages, into practice by command for his disciples to follow. But secondly, these ordinances uniquely display the gospel itself to God's people. Unlike the other things that are displayed, though they touch on the gospel, though they might portray it in some way, these two alone uniquely display the gospel in all of its beauty. Third, the two ordinances we continue to practice were emphasized throughout the New Testament. The apostles, the New Testament church, continued to practice and emphasize these gospel-bearing truths. And we see that continue throughout church history. Now, we have made the analogy before of the ordinances to that of a marriage. Baptism could be compared to the ring that is given once in the initiation of the covenant of marriage. Now, even think of that analogy. The ring doesn't mean married in and of itself. It doesn't make you married. What if the couple forgot the wedding ring? The best man lost it. Just running up to the wedding ceremony. Would the couple not be married? No. It's not marriage itself. It doesn't make you married. It symbolizes the marriage. The Lord's Supper then can be compared to the regular habitual celebration of marriage each year at the anniversary. If your husband, for some reason, forgets to celebrate the anniversary, does that mean you're not married? No, not at all. Baptism is the singular initiating event. It comes first. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing celebration of that new covenant. Second, why are the ordinances important? Why are the ordinances important? There are three subpoints. I don't have them on the slides, but you can pick them out as we go. Turn to Matthew chapter 28 now. Over a few pages, Matthew 28, we'll look at this great commission together. We know it well, but we want to see it. Matthew 28, we'll begin reading in verse 16. God's word says again, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth, that's everywhere, has been given to me. Now, based on that authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptize them into the name of the triune God. Give them a new name teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Why are the ordinances important? First, because of the nature of Christ's command. 
Baptism is commanded by Jesus as a distinguishing mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In Acts, we see this preached over and over again. Repent and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Over and over again. It's what it is to demonstrate what's happened internally. That repentance is real for you. It's the very first command he gives to disciples. The nature of the command reveals the nature of our discipleship. To obey his commands is to obey and honor him. Turn over now to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. We'll read verses 23 through 26 and see God's command again. First Corinthians 11 and verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord. He's saying, this isn't my idea. I'm not making up something new. I received this from the Lord, what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. He's saying, Jesus set the pattern. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Now hear these words that we know so well. Do this. That's a command for all of God's people. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And again, the command is repeated. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see? That tells us how long this is supposed to continue. So the importance of these symbols come from the fact that Jesus, our King, has commanded us to practice these signs. We affirm in practicing them that the church belongs to Jesus. That's something we want to declare again and again. We are His. He's the head of our church and every church that is a true church. And the church is His body. And I want you to hear this. This isn't just a command from an authoritarian leader saying, I am king and you need to know it. He knows what we need to think about. He knows what we need to rehearse and see again and again and again. He knows what we need to remember. And because he is the king, he gets to set the agenda. This is a question right away at the beginning with the command Will you trust his leadership? Does he know what he's doing? As a body, our responsibility is to follow his lead. Second subpoint is the nature of the gospel, the foundational story of the Bible. This is the overarching story. It's not all that the Bible is about, but this is the main story. It's about God sending his own son into a sin-cursed world to rescue a people who could never throw off the shackles of sin. Because of our sin, we are under God's just condemnation and there's nothing that we can do through our effort, through good works, to save us from God's just wrath. We deserve only wrath from a holy God. 
We are by nature sinners passed all the way down from Adam. But we are also sinners by choice. It is us who say to God, I will have my way. We do that week by week and we get this picture to be called again to repent. Again to come to the host of this table. God says in Ephesians that we were by nature children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins. That means unable to reach God. And then we get the good news. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that we are justified, declared righteous by his grace, by undeserved favor, by kindness that we cannot merit as a gift through the redemption, the rescue that is in Christ Jesus, whom God himself put forward. This is God's idea. God loves to save sinners, to display his glory and his love. God put forward as a propitiation to exhaust his wrath by his blood, to be received by faith. Peter puts it this way very simply, for Christ also suffered once for sins. And what suffering it was. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. In order that he might bring us to God. There's no way apart from Jesus, God in the flesh, for man to be brought into a right relationship with God. This is the good news about the bad news regarding our sinful hearts. Our desperate condition. These ordinances are little dramas of the gospel displaying all the facets of the jewel of salvation. In it, we see justification. We see adoption. We see sanctification. We see forgiveness and cleansing of sin. We see propitiation as God exhausts his wrath on Jesus as someone dies in the water and is raised to new life. All of the facets, that jewel of salvation is displayed before us in these symbols. They portray the gospel, these ordinances, magnifying it, highlighting its importance. Jesus is the focal point of these ordinances because Jesus is the focal point of the church. He's the focal point of our worship. And the ordinances in a unique and visible and tangible way place him and his work front and center for us. And we're declaring again that nothing or no one else should take the limelight away from him. Do you think we ever need that displayed? One pastor explains the abstract, invisible concepts that we talk about of Christ's propitiatory, his exhausting of God's wrath, his vicarious and substitutionary death for us are translated into a palpable sign, the bread and the cup that engages our physical senses of sight and touch and taste and smell. This is God's idea so we can touch and think and meditate on his love for us. All this makes Jesus' sacrifice more real to us. How gracious. Third, the nature of the church. These are signs for the encouragement of believers and only believers can fully understand and fully participate in them. These ordinances are summons of the king to respond. Every time we come to the table, 
We're to take this matter very seriously, Paul says. It really truly is a matter of life and death to come to this table unworthily. We take the ordinance of baptism very seriously. We're offering assurance as a body that someone's profession of faith is real. We don't want to do that hastily or carelessly or flippantly. We're called again and again here at the table to turn from our sins to Christ. In Acts, we hear again and again, repent and believe. At the table around these waters, we hear repent and believe. Only those who profess faith in Christ are members of God's true church. And we're proclaiming together in these two signs that we are his. This isn't to demean, some, to demean somebody who's outside of the faith. This is to rejoice in what we have, to find our security there, and cause others to be hungry and thirsty for that kind of a relationship. Consider how participating in these practices together helps strengthen our faith. We're not alone in our belief. We're not alone in our experience of God's grace. We're not to celebrate these alone as individuals. We come together. That's why this is to be done together. Paul says again in Ephesians, we're unified together in Christ by remembering our one Lord, our one faith, our one baptism. It's emphasized explicitly in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, one Christ. We who are many are made one body, for we all partake of that one bread, Christ. He's building his church through this gospel, and we, his people, are the gospel made visible. Especially as we show these signs and symbols to each other, to a watching world. They're communal symbols in which we as God's people are expressing our thanks for what he's done. We're remembering what we're unified around. A new family has been forged through the sweat, through the blood of our Savior. Together, we're bringing him praise and honor. Number three, how do the ordinances help us grow in grace? How are they a help to our walk with Christ? Well, just consider the question that we really began with. Why? Why would God command such strange practices? Now, we're familiar with them. Many of us grew up within the church. But think about if you were somebody unfamiliar with the church. Wouldn't you see this as kind of odd? What, what, are, what are we doing here? Why water and bread and the cup? And does God really need from me a visible sign that we will love and obey him? Does he need that sign from me to know what's in my heart? Is that truly the primary purpose for these ordinances? Certainly, they provide us an opportunity to demonstrate externally what God has done for us internally. It's important for us to make our faith public, but these symbols are also more than that. And what we see in the Bible over and over again is this repeated pattern of revelation and then response. And that's how we want to think of the ordinances. These are first something that God is saying to us, and then we respond. That makes them so much deeper, so much richer, so much more meaningful. You see, God's saying to us that he never wants us to forget the objective reality of his love. And he wants you to feel it. 
God intends to anchor our fickle and subjective feelings in the objective work of Christ. Here at the table and there in those waters. If you doubt the love of God for you this morning, if you feel like you're beyond his forgiveness, if you recognize you have no business truly being called by his name, if you recognize that you're unworthy to be his child, what God wants you to see is these elements this morning and what they picture for us here. That he loved you so much, he would die for you. That he was raised for your justification. So how do these ordinances help us grow in grace? First, they provide an opportunity to experience Christ's love for us. To experience it. When you see someone step into the waters of baptism, remember that God is speaking words of comfort, visible words. He's speaking to sinners in that picture saying, I am willing to forgive all of your sins if you will put faith in my son. I am placing you in union with my son and all the victory he gained through his death and his resurrection, the righteousness His obedience is placed on your account, though you did not earn it. He died for your disobedience. He was raised from death that he might bring us to God. Just consider how God intends for baptism to help provide you with assurance. Think of what happens as we go through that process. No individual can baptize themselves. They need help to go through the process, to go through the waters. They need someone to work that through with them. You don't baptize yourself. This is a church's act. And if the ordinances are practiced well and carefully, then they can provide much confidence and assurance. Another believer, a church leader, a church family, has to take part in examining the credibility of a person's profession of faith. You get the assistance of a church family that desperately wants to help you understand the nature of your relationship with Christ and to help you determine, is this real? Certainly our faith is personal, but it was never intended to be private and this is part of God's wise design for his people. When you hold the wafer in your hand, when you hold that cup picturing for you his blood, let it comfort and encourage And draw you to your loving God. He gave us this sign to remember what he did for us. So that we'll be strengthened and encouraged to love and obey him. So to minimize these ordinances is to minimize what he intends to magnify himself. The gospel. His sacrifice. His victory. To minimize these ordinances in your heart is to minimize his expressions of love to you. It's as if we're saying that these gifts sacrificially given to us by our Lord, instituted by the wisdom of our King, we're saying they're insignificant. What ingratitude and self-centeredness we display when we take these moments, these displays of the gospel for granted. Can you see God's immense love for you in these pictures? Do you see why he's put them into the fabric of church life? They're like neon signs flashing gospel, gospel, gospel. God loves sinners and he rescues them for his own glory. 
These pictures are assurances of pardon. They perfectly demonstrate his holiness and his mercy. His justice and his love. His wrath and his forgiveness. They balance them out together. In and through these ordinances we behold our God in all his uniqueness. In all of his fullness. These pictures of gospel grace then most fully show us what God is like in all his splendid, manifold wisdom and love. Can you see how loving and kind our Heavenly Father is to us to repeatedly show us these pictures? Secondly, they do provide us an opportunity to express our love for him. It's revelation and response. One theologian summarizes in these symbolic acts We celebrate God's salvation. We declare our allegiance and affirm our presence or identity as part of his church. Both of these symbols provide us with an opportunity to reaffirm our love and our commitment to Christ. As we watch others in our church family be baptized, we are pledging to care for them within the confines of this church family. We're reminded of what Christ has done in us personally. We're joined into their story. When we think of the ordinances as a church family, though, there's two extremes that we need to avoid. On the one hand, some people, some churches overemphasize the ordinances, believing that practicing them is essential to salvation or that they can provide grace to us apart from faith in Christ. But these ordinances cannot save anyone. The analogy of the wedding ring is helpful. It doesn't make you married. It pictures your marriage. It reminds you of marriage. It's a valuable object to show you the value of your marriage. The ordinances display gospel realities. They don't produce saving faith within us. We should not overstate what these practices accomplish within us. But on the other hand, We must not minimize the Bible's teachings on these ordinances in order to achieve some artificial display of unity. These are Christ's commands. They do mean something. They're very important commands. They're a part of the mission of all followers of Jesus. So he intends for us to practice them to the best of our understanding. We're responsible to study and understand his words regarding these issues to the best of our ability. We do so even when that means that we end up not worshiping with other God-honoring believers who practice these ordinances differently. Differing views of these issues will lead us to worshiping in separate churches. That's not wrong in and of itself. And there is still much we can and will be unified around. We want to hold our views on these two ordinances with charity without acting or thinking that those believers who disagree must not be as smart as we are or as committed to Christ or not as studied as we are. But neither can we act as though they mean nothing. They've been understood by believers throughout church history, evangelical believers who hold to the gospel as primary means by which we declare our loyalty to Jesus even when we practice them differently. Just because Christians have come to differing conclusions does not mean that we're free to hold or practice them lightly. There are only two of them. 
Just think of that. There are only two. They're both commanded by our gracious king. So even though there's debate amongst Christians who want to honor God, who want to honor his word, we have to do our best to understand them, to hold them with conviction, and practice them as faithfully as we're able. God the judge will tell us who is right and who is wrong at the end of days, right? So our conclusion this morning is that we're to value these gospel ordinances. We're to change our thinking. We're to deepen our roots. We're to grow in our belief and our conviction that these ordinances are gifts of his grace in order that we would know him, that we would grow in our love for him. One author writes, the more we understand and appreciate what the elements of the ordinances signify, the more benefit they will bring and the more we will value them. Is it possible you don't value these ordinances very much because you don't understand them as well as you should? You haven't spent time yourself personally, like a Berean believer, searching the scriptures. What does it mean to value these ordinances? It means that we should participate them in them with both reverence and gratitude. We should seek to understand them better from Scripture. Certainly one sermon cannot adequately demonstrate all that the Scripture teaches about them. For your benefit, I've placed two very small, very easily readable books in the recommended resources book rack back there in the back of the auditorium. You could read about them in a theology or church history book. I have several helpful books that I could recommend to you. You could also discuss them with other members of this body and how God has helped shape them or remind them of the gospel in their life. Why would God command these two visible, tangible displays of the gospel? Can you answer that better now this morning? Why would God command them? Because God is the best father. There's no father like him who pledges his love to us like him and we don't deserve it and that's what these tell us and he loves us anyway two of his best gifts to his children that regularly provide assurances to us that encourage us when we're discouraged that help us set our eyes on him and his saving grace in our lives are these two ordinances out of his love for us he's commanded to visible and tangible displays. If you're not a Christian, then today is a perfect time for you to be able to hear and see the gospel. We've been talking all about it. All the theme throughout this whole service is to look at Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinful men. The ordinances aren't so much something we do, but the way Christ enables us to enjoy his presence. In it, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will eat with him and he with me. When that happens, we discover that when he comes and is present at the table, he becomes the host and gives us his little love gifts of the bread and the cup, visible, tangible, tasteable expressions of his dying love for us and we recognize his presence with us. These reminders are demonstrations of his great love. They help us know and trust and love 
and enjoy our Savior. May we grow in our confidence and in our faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we seek to practice these ordinances intentionally, carefully, and regularly. Let's close with prayer this morning. As I pray, I'm going to ask our deacons to prepare for the Lord's table. We'll come together around it in just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for these reminders, for these displays. They're unique. They're more than just words. They're living words, living pictures, little dramas of what you've done for us. So even as we transition now into a time where we're participating in this drama, we're being called by our King to come to the table and fellowship to be in communion with him. Father, may we rejoice in your love for us, in your kindness, in your wisdom, in communicating in a way that we cannot miss. You've designed this for us to touch and taste and feel. And not just so that we could fall into some routine or pattern, but that we would know your love that we would know what it cost to bring us into your family, that that would cause us to walk in newness of life, to push sin out of our lives because we love you. Father, give us grace now as we come to the table to respond well, grow our faith, help our unbelief, help us to see our great King, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.